Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths, Senior Investment Grade Strategist, and joining me today is Zerlina Zhang, our Senior Analyst covering all things China macro. Zerlina, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Zach, for inviting me. All right, well, I understand you just got back from a big trip to China, meeting with issuers and investors. And so it'll be great to get your perspective on how investor sentiment is in the market and how some of the issuers are thinking about the the latest development. So let's just start with the economic growth picture. Third quarter growth did surprise the upside, posting a 4.9% year-over-year increase versus expectations for just 4.5%. Can you take us through some of your key takeaways on the latest economic growth numbers, what that means for your full year 23 forecasts and how it factors into your thoughts heading into 2024. Yeah, sure. So there have been indeed some green shoots in the Chinese economy starting in August, including the improving PMI, so narrowing the export decline, industrial production is going good, the credit demand is also picking up. I think the main reasons are a few. The first is the seasonality. So starting from August, it's usually the highest season for industrial production investment and consumption. And of course, we still have the policy impetus from the ongoing monetary and fiscal support measure. So overall, we think China should still be able to achieve the around 5% GDP growth target, which was set by the government in March this year. And so far, 9 months 23 growth was above this target, and we are seeing some momentum picking up. For next year, there should be some further improvement given the strong loaded government bond issuance and the improvement is going to also be seen in industrial production and property sector and some consumption related areas. But overall, we think for next year, the improvement is not going to be very inspiring for a few reasons. So as you mentioned, we were on the ground in China visiting a few first tier and second tier cities. It feels like on the ground, the consumer and business confidence haven't really picked up. It's still quite weak. I think the main reason is because the property sector is still in the downturn. And this downturn is likely going to last for another few years because of the structural issues such as um, aging population, slowing urbanization rate, as well as the low confidence of the home buyers. Um, overall, I think a lot of the onshore investors are saying the Chinese economy is lacking new growth drivers outside the property, and we tend to agree with this view. There are a few areas the Chinese government is focusing on. One is the semiconductor technology-related sectors, but most onshore investors think the gap between the Chinese technology sector and the Western ones is still quite big, talking about the years of technology gap. 
Of course, the Chinese government is pushing ahead the electric vehicle sector along the whole value chain from manufacturing to battery and to some of the sales-related channel. But the overview, overall view is the competition has been very high and not very healthy to some extent. Um, margin is not great for um, the manufacturers along the value chain. And it seems like once the government do away with the subsidies, the consumption and related industrial production might slow down. So overall, I think the China growth picture is still a slow recovery. There are areas of strength within the economy, such as local services related consumption, consumption of, of small ticket retail stuff. But overall, it's uh, not very inspiring and the recovery picture. And I think the structural growth, growth slowdown is lying ahead of us for the next few years. And when you say structural growth slowdown, what does that mean? Are, are we kind of looking at 5% as a general run rate or what, what's the range that you think that equates to? Obviously, China has had pretty superpowered growth for as long as I can remember. And 5% still sounds pretty good compared to what we've gotten used to here in the U.S. But what does that settle into, at least in terms of a range from your view? Yeah, um, I agree with you. I, I think if China achieved a uh, real GDP growth of around 5%, that would already be great. And I think this is also the number that onshore investors um, are looking at. And I, I think this is a kind of a reasonable outlook for us as well. The assumption of this 5% or a slightly low to mid-single-digit growth is there is no systematic risk within the Chinese economy. So we are seeing the assuming that the property sector is going to have a slow sale um, in the next few years. The, the risk is not going to spill over to the banking sector and the hidden local government debt and the LGAD debt will be largely under control. So there, the sector is not going to be the next shoe to fall. Um, so these are the assumptions. And if we don't see any systematic risk, which is the base case scenario now, then I think a low to mid single digit real GDP um, growth target is still achievable. This means that I think for the general population, I mean, yes, compared to the developed market, this is still a de decent GDP growth, but in order to support the employment of the general pop uh, population, there are still some challenges and difficulties, especially regarding the youth unemployment rate. So I think for the government, there are still a lot of things that they should do, for instance, for the youth population in past few years, a lot of the specialties are developed in the education, technology, summer in the financial services sector. But these sectors are no longer the same as in the past. As you know, there has been a lot of regulations, there has been a lot of crackdown towards these sectors. So to some extent, the government needs to identify some new employment areas for the youth population. Interesting. And in terms of the attitude on Sure. Is the youth unemployment something that seems pretty pervasive? And, and maybe that's not something that you can get a great feel for as you're going through your meetings. But is it something that comes up in discussions or is it kind of just an understood issue that the government needs to address? Yeah, I think it is a quite a severe issue for the Chinese government. We don't have the updated data anymore because the government stopped um, reporting a youth unemployment rate since two months ago. 
but based on our conversations with the issuers and some of the um, market participants, I don't think the situation has uh, significantly improved um, because if you look at the investment of the manufacturing sector, especially the privately owned enterprises and the small, medium-sized enterprises, their investment hasn't really picked up. So the implication is their employment and their need for uh, new employees out of the school is not really substantially picked up either. China is faced with a large wave of new graduates around September and October. I think or some of these new graduates are going to the SOE sector. And this is indeed an area that the local government and the central government are trying to encourage. We are seeing the job postings from some of the state-owned enterprises, especially in tech. Um, especially in, in, in the government-related sectors. Um, but we all know the efficiency and the productivity of the SOE segment is not as high as the private-owned sector. And with the downturn of the property sector, a lot of the employment in, in these sectors are just permanently gone. The other area of difficulty is coming from the export sector. Throughout the three years of COVID, a lot of the privately-owned enterprises, especially the export-oriented ones, in the affluent coastal regions, they have permanently lost a lot of export orders. So the employment in these sectors have already come down, and we are not seeing a very visible recovery in the past few months, despite a lot of the macro support measures rolled out by the central and local government. Do you think it seems like perhaps the way the government up to this point has tried to address the youth unemployment issue is by looking to expand employment at the SOEs? Sounds like that would not be a sustainable long-run strategy yeah. from your perspective. Yeah, I don't think this is very sustainable, but in any Chinese economy, the SOEs are taking a very much front and center role in terms of driving a lot of sectors. It's not just in the heavy industrial sectors, such as the metals and mining, chemicals, and the national oil companies, but also this has expanded to property. So we're seeing the state-owned property developers consolidating the sector in the technology sector, there has also been a lot of government influence. So I think without doubt, the SOEs will be a driving force of the Chinese economy. Whether they can fill the gap of the youth employment, which, which was in the past with the privately owned enterprises, is a bit hard to say, just because of the operational efficiency as well as productivity of the state-owned sector. And anyhow, the property sector is going to shrink, which is almost a consensus among a lot of the onshore participants and the insurers. And it's talking about maybe 20 to 30% smaller than the peak of 2018 and 2019. So correspondingly, we are going to see a sharp decline in property-related employment. Well, you read my mind where I wanted to go next. I know we've touched on China property a bit already, and I understand you also met with a state link developer during your visit. You've kind of outlined your high-level views, but could we kind of just put a point on how you're thinking about the state of the property mar market going forward? It sounds like it's going to need to shrink and there are still plenty of, of headlines connected to large developers, but give us sort of your, your overall view on where China property is headed. Yeah, sure. So the recent property easing measures, including lowering the down payment ratios, easing some of the home purchase restrictions in first-tier cities, they did have some positive impact on home sales. But these positive impacts are mainly in home sales and prices in core districts of upper-tier cities. So we're talking about the 
Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, all these tier one cities and some of these strong selected tier two cities. And the demand was mainly driven by upgraders, um, those people who have existing homes, but now they are eligible for lower down payment and a lower mortgage rate for buying a new and bigger home. For those core demand, which are people, households without homes, they are still waiting for a more easy measure and they are hoping for prices to fall. So it's a very uneven recovery across cities and across different buyer segments. Now, the picture in the lower tier cities, which is the majority of the home, majority of the cities in China, they are faced with a lot of challenges, such as the high inventory level. The home prices are tumbling, which in turn lead to a weak home demand and the weak price expectation of the home buyers. Um, so overall, um, I think the property sector is going to see a multi-year downturn just because the home buyers' expectation of home prices have significantly lowered. So for a lot of buyers, property is no longer a good investment uh, because if you think about it, the right now the mortgage rate is still around 4%. If the home buyers think the home price appreciation is no longer going to be 4% or higher, then this investment um, with leverage it just doesn't make any sense. And structurally, there are also issues such as aging population and low elevation. So overall, this is still quite a challenging picture for the China property market. Yeah, sounds like it's going to be an ongoing issue for years to come. And when we last discussed China from a macro perspective, it seemed like you were maybe a bit more optimistic from a bond market investor perspective, even though some of the fiscal and monetary support that had been discussed by the government hadn't been enacted yet. There have been plenty of additional policy changes since our discussion in August. Do you think Chinese authorities have, have done enough or is there more to be done to support the economy and financial markets in a fashion that produces this 5% growth target that the government has? Yeah, I think the property support measures so far have been very much focused on containing systemic risk and social unrest, i.e. they are prioritizing the home deliveries and paying off the payables of the developers to the engineering and construction sector. And for this reason, we are still relatively positive on the outlook of industrial sectors outside property as well as the banking sector for now. But because the property support measures are not directly towards the funding of property developers and retain their dollar bonds and onshore bonds, so far these measures have not really stopped the privately owned developers from defaulting on their bonds. And the recovery prospect of those defaulted names, such as Evergrande, hasn't really substantially improved. So I think the transmission of monetary and fiscal easing measures are sometimes also not effective as the um, consumer and business confidence levels are very low at the moment. And with this lower expectation of home prices and lack of alternative investment and saving channel, as well as the, we just discussed the high unemployment rate, I think in general, Chinese consumers are downgrading their consumption. They're doing more proactive savings and they're not buying large ticket items. So in, in this area, the government might be able to do more consumption stimulus related measures, including you know, continued support for purchase of electric vehicles, purchasing of a home appliances for rural areas. And the property downturn is also hitting some of the sectors along the value chain, um, such as home appliances furniture, metals and mining, the manufacturing. So this resulted in low business confidence and difficulties in transmitting some of the property, some of the monetary and fiscal easing measures. 
to the real economy. I think another point to note is there is some lack of coordination between different regulatory bodies. So for instance, there hasn't been a lot of a property easing measure top down from the central government. But when it comes to uh, on the ground, a lot of the local branches of banks are still unwilling to lend to the developers because of concerns of non-payment issues. And the local government are still keeping very tight supervision of the escrow account, which is are the proceeds of the contract itself. This result in difficulties for developers to tap into the, um, the, the contract itself proceeds for repaying on dollar bond. There is also some you know, lack of coordination between the central bank, the PBOC, and the Ministry of Finance in terms of the pace of issuing local and central government bonds. So, for instance, in the fourth quarter, we are going to see a record high issuance of the central and local government bonds, while the room for the PBOT to do further easing is limited because of the current depreciation pressure and the ongoing triple R cut and policy rate cut in, in the first half of the year. Interesting. So it, it seems like perhaps some of the measures have been successful in containing systemic risk and overall social unrest, but in terms of really helping the property borrowers and, and these big developers that are continuing to face default, you know, that hasn't been addressed and perhaps won't. And that's sort of flowing through to confidence issues throughout the system. And so for the government to really address all of that, it needs to almost be more consumer focused support from here. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think they also need to do better coordination between different regulatory bodies. They need to also act more timely because if they had rolled out all these property easing measures, not now, but instead in the end of 2021 or 2022, early 2022, then we would be facing a very different picture. But back then, the government was still hoping for the banks and ANC to step in to voluntarily buying up some of the uh, property projects to extend funding on a more market-based mechanism, but it didn't happen. So as of now, it was a bit late and the effectiveness of the property easing measures has been significantly discounted for that reason. And so when we think about how that has played into where the economy is today, it seems like the Chinese economy is experiencing very weak inflation. You have consumer prices flat on a year-over-year basis, producer prices falling two and a half percent. Do you think this will persist and could this result in the Chinese economy potentially exporting deflationary pressures to other more developed nations that it is a primary trade partner with? Yeah, I think the CPI deflationary pressure is not a major concern for us because the past few months, it was mainly due to the high base in 2022, especially fuel and food-related prices. Starting in September, the CPI inflation was already picking up, and I think the momentum will continue um, over the next few months and overall not a major concern. But PPI deflation might persist um, as manufacturers that they had aggressively expanded production in the first quarter post the COVID reopening in anticipation of a very strong macro rebound, uh, which didn't happen. So it is going to take some time to digest these inventory levels, especially against this weak macro backdrop. Some of the factors such as uh, consumer electronics, including PCs, smartphones, the inventory levels are coming down, but they still need a few months to digest and maybe also market. And then 
Conversely, on the inflation front, if the Chinese economy were to rebound more substantially, and it seems like that would have to be the result of more targeted and coordinated policy assistance, but if that were to come together, could it boost inflation globally on things such as tourism or luxury goods? If you were to have Chinese consumers traveling more and doing some of the more typical, I guess, services and higher price goods spending that we might expect during a recovery? Yeah, I see the inflation, exporting inflation mainly coming from the commodity channel because in the past few months, um, starting the earlier part of the year, the Chinese government has been stocking up some energy-related products, oil, metals, stuff, and iron ore. So if the Chinese economy is going to have a quite strong rebound over the next few months, which is actually not our base case scenario, then we are going to see a more visible recovery of commodity-related demand. But I, I don't expect the, forum, the overseas tourism from China to pick up very significantly um, over the near term for a few reasons. The first is that there's still a quite big um, backlog in terms of visa and passport approval. And the international flight hasn't really picked up. And the local government and central government has largely been directing the population to do more domestic tourism. So in the past couple of weeks when we were in China, at the airport, you could see the domestic check-in counters are super crowded with very long queues. But if you look at the international departure terminals, it was just empty. We spoke with some of the tour agencies. It seems like the demand for international traveling is just not there yet. I think R&D depreciation is also another reason. Um, it's just very costly for the Chinese population to go overseas. I think this is also a reflection of a downgrade of consumption of the Chinese population because after domestic tourism is a lot more affordable than going overseas. For the luxury goods, I would say the spending momentum seems it's just slowing down a bit. We visited a few luxury shops in first-tier cities. Surprisingly, some of the stocks, which we don't see in Singapore and other Asian markets, are actually showing up in stores in China. So I think it's also another reflection of the overall tepid consumption trend in China. And going back to something that you mentioned earlier, just in terms of how policy assistance is flowing through the system for property developers, you mentioned that some local banks are unwilling to lend or just concerned with the potential for getting paid back. How do you think about the state of the banking and shadow banking system in China? My question is, is it a source of resilience or more potential uncertainty? It seems like maybe it's it's contributing to the uncertainty and some of the challenges, but give us your overall views there on banking and shadow banking. Yeah, I think there have been quite many news headlines regarding the default of some large trust companies, um, but overall shadow banking as a quality where the contingent risk is not a very big concern for us. Over the past years, the shadow banking sector in China is shrinking because of the heavy-handed crackdown by the Chinese regulators on some of the irregularities related to the shadow banking lending. So the sector was once a major funding channel for local government financing vehicles and property companies, but this is no longer the case. For local government financing vehicles, they could easily obtain a bank loan, and some could also issue onshore bonds. These are overall cheaper than trust loans. And for property trust-related loans, they have tumbled alongside other funding channels for the sector. There have been some trust loan defaults, but due to the relatively small size, we don't see very elevated systematic concerns. 
So for the overall Chinese banking asset quality and capital adequacy, I think overall it's still quite sound. Some small rural and city commercial banks, they do have some higher exposure to local government financing vehicles, and they are faced with some tight capital buffers. The Chinese government will likely continue to guide these weak players to tap into the onshore bank capital instrument market to replenish their capital. And they will continue to ask their local government to inject capital using the proceeds from the issuance or special purpose bonds. So this, to some extent, will mitigate the risk of these smaller rural and commercial banks. But I think over to the medium to long term, we do have some concerns for the banking sector, given now they're doing a lot of national service. One is digesting the hidden local government debt, including the LGIV debt. So for the Chinese government, they are encouraging the banks to extend the bank loans to the LGIV sector at very low interest rates. And this is going to put some burden on the bank's asset quality over the, the medium to long term. And the banking sector do have exposure to property loans, construction loans, working capital loans. And some of them also have exposure to the property really trust loans. So right now, it's still manageable because the PBOC allowed the banks to have certain forbearance in terms of property-related lending. But all these, you know, problem assets are still parked with the banking system. And there has been no clear medium to long-term resolution for both the property and LGAV-related problem assets. Yeah, a lot of moving pieces there to consider, but that's all helpful to frame up kind of the breakdown between near-term concerns, which are, are maybe limited, but from a medium to longer-term perspective, there's definitely challenges for the sector as a whole. And just to round us out with another piece of relevant information and relevant news, I guess, is so the U.S. Department of Commerce recently brought in restrictions of U.S. chip exports to China to close a loophole from the 2022 export control measures. How does this affect your view and, and our team's view on the internet and hardware companies in our coverage? Yeah, so the broadened U.S. chip export restrictions measures were not a big surprise to the market and the issuers that we spoke with in the past few weeks, just because these companies expect the intensifying technology rivalry between U.S. and China. And there has been a lot of news ongoing with rising U.S. concerns over the effectiveness of the previous export restrictions published in October last year. Then the recent debut of Huawei's breakthrough 7 nanometer chip was also in the news headline. So overall, that was not a big surprise. And interestingly, I think for the dollar bonds of our China tech sector, both the internet platforms and hardware companies have actually tightened in the past one week. I think this is more of a technical uh, reason because the new supply from Chinese issuers, especially the higher quality ones, is very uh, limited and investors tend to park their cash um, at low beta, higher quality names for some year-end carry. So the updated restriction, they also didn't um, impose further restrictions on the export of the DUV discography tools to Chinese firms. This also came as a slight positive surprise for the market. So we see limited near-term credit impact of these restrictions on our covered Chinese internet platform companies. The advanced AI chips are actually not widely used in the core business of these internet platform companies. And the low-performance imported chips or some of the domestically produced chips should be able to meet the daily operation need of their various business lines, such as e-commerce, domestic gaming, social media platforms, and some of the short video 
platforms related business. Then for hardware companies such as Lenovo, um, our understanding is their offering outside China to non-Chinese clients are not restricted by the new export restriction, though the impact to some extent is mitigated by their geographic diversification. However, there's a tightened U.S. chip export restrictions and the potential future expansion could you know, hinder the Chinese technology companies AI initiative and also their monetization ability over the medium to long term. So most of the um, tech companies that we spoke with in the past few weeks think the domestic chip industry is unlikely to catch up uh, very quickly with the Western players. This is going to take at least one to three years in a very optimistic scenario. So Lena, this has been awesome. I've learned a ton. I've got enough new questions here and I feel like we could talk about these topics for hours, but we'll definitely have to have you back on. Thank you for joining us today. This is this has been a great discussion. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on No More Risk Better. Have a good day. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.